The problem is, let's try and state it again without too much detail. The problem is that in the Parsha that we read a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the verses specifically inside. I'm not going to do that again. The Torah says quite clearly that if you live up to the standards that you should live up to, if we as a Jewish people are doing what we should, we live up to our obligations, then there will be certain consequences. And the consequences that the Torah mentions, without again going into detail, are a long list of what sounds like reward. And that list includes the fact that there will be no shortage, no want, that the crops will grow, the rains will fall, there will be peace, etc. A long description ending with the fact that that Hashem, God, will walk among us, whatever exactly that means, build, the, build His Mishkan, which means the temple, and be here, His presence will manifest here. That's a long description of the consequences of what our functioning correctly will be. The problem is twofold. One is that this whole list of apparent rewards are only, each of them is only something that is physical and finite in this world. There's no mention here of a reward in the world to come. That's a problem. The problem is, again, you can phrase it in two different, two different ways, boil down to the same thing. If there is a reward, let's use that word, English word of reward, if there's a reward or a consequence of living correctly, which is what we call the world to come, or the next world, then why does the Torah not mention it? That's the central problem. Not only here, but nowhere. In all the text of the Torah, if you go through all the scriptural writings, there's no mention of a world to come at all. There's plenty of mention of a messianic age. And I think we've been before into the distinction between the, the phase that is in, inhabited by souls of people who are not alive right now, what the resurrection will be, what the messianic age will be. But here we're talking about the world to come, which is way beyond the messianic age. It's in the year 10,000, to put it into its Kabbalistic formulation. In that final stage that we call the ultimate and final world to come, that stage is not mentioned in the text of the Torah at all. That's the first problem. Secondly, the Torah does purport to give a sense of reward. It's not that the Torah ignores the concept of payout or reward for living correctly. The Torah does. The problem is that whenever, when the Torah does stipulate what the reward will be, it goes into a description of only physical and finite consequences in this world. So the sum total of this problem is that it would appear from the text of the Torah that there is no world to come, there's no evidence of it. And moreover, the Torah does discuss the consequences of living correctly, and it makes it very plain, it would seem, that the consequences are only here and now in this world. So anyone looking to be negative or to attack the concept, the tradition that we have about a world to come, would say that our own texts do not support such a notion. There's no mention of it in the text, and when the Torah does talk about reward, it limits itself to discussion of things that are finite and physical in this world. So that is, that is the problem. Now, without enlarging on the problem, since we've been looking at it for a few weeks, <clears throat> we, we stated a number of answers, and I'm again not going to revise all of them. The first one you'll remember, without any detail, the classic answer the Rambam gives, is that this list of consequences here has nothing to do with reward, it's only expenses, right? That's probably the most classic of all the answers. The Torah here is only saying that if you live correctly, you'll be given the means to continue living correctly. When you serve the way you should, as a Jewish people, you live correctly in the world, then the world will yield what it needs to keep you, to give you the, the means to continue functioning correctly. You don't need, not everything that you need, you'll be given... And that's all that's being stated here. So we're not talking here about reward. We're talking only about an expense account. The salary, the salary is something that is not being discussed here. That is, that will be, that is talk, that's not talked about here. The Torah is not purporting to talk about salary. It's purporting only to talk about expenses. Fine. We're together. Second part of the question, why doesn't the Torah elsewhere mention the concept of a world to come? This answer is, says the Rambam, because then you would be motivated to do what you should do for the reward, and that's not a process of love. Process of love means you do it because it's correct, because of the relationship itself, and the reward is something that you may know about, but should not be part of the contractual, it should not be there as an explicit part of the motivation. And therefore, the Torah allows you to know about it by implying that there's a world to come between the lines and in the oral tradition, but does not make it part of the written contract. However, what is part of the written contract, which is no reason why it shouldn't be, is the statement of your expenses that if you live correctly, you'll be given what you need 
That's this classic answer. Now, without running through the others, we went through at least four of the seven answers that are mentioned, that are mentioned here. And I'd like to, with your permission, move on. Those who weren't here in the previous discussions, again, you're urged to look it up yourself. It's a very, very clear and straightforward text in the Kliyakra here. But let us move on to the fifth answer and begin from there. Can we do that? So he says this, that this also was discussed in the Morin Nebuchim, Guide to the Perplexed of the Rambam, other sources. The concept is this, that before the Torah was given, what I'd like to do is complete the seven this evening if we can, and I'd like to share with you something that comes from the deeper wisdom, which goes beyond these seven answers, which should require more thinking, but is a, a wonderful concept, and if we can try and devote some time to that, that would be, be very good. So let's see if we can Let's see if we can manage that this evening. The concept is that before the Torah was given, there was a there was widespread idolatry, and the people to whom the Torah was given, namely us, the Jewish people, before we received the Torah, we were involved. We were part of a world where the normal process was idolatrous idolatrous service. In other words, people focused on intermediaries, sun, wind, moon, forces of nature, etc., and they they dealt or they related to those things, believing that relating correctly to those forces of cosmic forces would give them what they needed and provide the, their, their needs. We discussed once before in detail the concept of idolatry, what it means, exactly how it's not a relating or a worship of silly inanimate objects. It is a relationship to the correct source, but focusing on the intermediaries as opposed to going to the source of those intermediaries. Be that as it may, that was the mode. People were involved before the Torah was given with its, with its incredibly significant and, and all-important message of, of relating to one source of reality. People related to these intermediaries. The mode was idolatry. Therefore, when the Torah was given, it had a say that that is the mode you have to change. If you wish to be given what you need to live correctly, to live successfully, to live materially in this world, stop looking to those sources and look to this source. And that was needed in order to reassure people who believed that they needed these efforts, let's say, these idolatrous efforts in order to survive. The Torah had to say, don't worry, if you leave those and focus here, your needs will be provided from this source. So in order to switch people's consciousness from the wrong idolatrous focus that they had before, the Torah stipulated, from now on, if you continue that, you will guarantee that you will not get what you need. You need to turn your focus in this direction, and that is what you will need. But since nobody up till that stage practiced any idolatrous actions with a view to receiving a world to come or sharing the world to come, there was no need to stipulate that here. The only problem that's being addressed here, telling you that you'll have your needs in the physical world, is only because people had to detach themselves from the idolatrous connection and attach themselves to the Torah connection, that is what that's why this was found necessary to be stipulated, the world to come being something completely separate, no idolatry in the world has ever promised its followers a share in the world to come, idolatry promises rich reward here and now Right? you need something, do this, you'll get it what will be in the next world, that's not the province of idolatrous efforts, and therefore it wasn't needed to be stipulated here, Okay. can we move on to the sixth answer the Kliyaka, he says that Okay, this is a little bit more, takes a bit more thought. He says that when you read carefully this list of, of promised rewards, it ends with a promise that the spiritual world will be connected with us here within the physical. Right? The, 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 the end of this long list, after it gets through talking about the, the physical and material well-being, it says, That means, I'll walk among you. I shall give my mishkan. Simply put, means a temple. That means Hashem will have a place. God will have a place of residence here, and His presence will be manifest in the physical world. So he reasons like this. You have to understand like this. If there's a promise in the Torah that the physical world, that while we're enmeshed with the physical world, while the soul yet inhabits a body, there's a promise that even in that mode there'll be a connection with the spiritual source. That means when we complete what we have to do, we reach that fullness of, of having served the way we should have as, as a people, 
there's a promise that the spiritual world will connect with us here. That means Hashem Himself will connect with us openly and tangibly in this world. You can readily reason that if that's what will happen while I'm still engaged with the body, connected with the body, once I transcend this body and leave it, there's no question that I will have a connection with the spiritual source. Again, we're not talking about people who doubt that there is a spiritual world. We're not talking, this is not a proof of God's existence. That's not what the Torah is talking about here. This is speaking to people who believe in Hashem's existence, only they believe that He's not going to reward them in the next world. They have a problem with that. The answer is, if you see that you will bond, you'll have an opportunity to bond with Him in this world while in the, in the paradoxical situation of yet being limited by a body, being limited by the vessel, as the sources say. And even there, there's a promise that you'll be able to connect, although it's paradoxical, with the ultimate, which is not limited by a vessel. So it's a very, very simple step from there to, to understand that when you divest yourself of your body, when you transcend the body, when the body, when the neshama, the soul, leaves the body, there can be no question that there will be a bonding with a spiritual source. This leads to a long discussion, which is now I'm not going to go into in detail, but <clears throat> the paradox itself needs to be understood, and that is that <coughs> there's a pervasive Torah concept that the soul being with the body is a, is a problem, it's a paradox. The neshama, the soul, is that which transcends anything finite, and that it should be connected with the body is miraculous. Right? <coughs> The fact that an infinite neshama can be constrained within a finite physical body, just the fact that it can be constrained, that it can fill a vessel that's finite, that's limited, is a problem in the mystical or spiritual world. There are many other layers to this problem, such as the fact that the body itself has its own contamination, contains its own excrement. How can a neshama, which comes from the world of purity, inhabit a body that is connected with the world of the lower world? But the essential problem in the, in the Kabbalistic writings is, is the very fact that the neshama, which is a projection of infinity, can be limited inside of a finite body. This problem goes all the way back to the original point of creation itself, which has Kabbalistic names, this, this problem, but that's not our issue for now. And there are, many, there are many poetic, seemingly poetic descriptions of how the body contains the neshama, how they always at odds with each other, how the neshama is always trying to pull out and go back to the source that she comes from, the body is always trying to contain her, how they, they fail to, to understand each other, that the psychic pain, the pain that we experience, all pain that we experience in our life efforts really can be traced to the, to the lack of harmony between a body and a soul. Spiritual perfection, or enlightenment if you like, really rests in finding peace with the body. That means that the neshama can understand, or just if you like, to the fact that it's within a finite vessel and yet blend with that which is infinite. That's what it is. There's many examples of this. I mean, the famous Marshal of the Chavetz Chaim says that the reason that we keep seeking pleasures and we're never satisfied by the pleasure is always because the pleasure that the body tries to give the soul, since he doesn't understand her, he tries to give her the pleasures that he would enjoy. The Marshal that the Chavetz Chaim gives is that being born, a soul being put into a body, is like a princess from a very, very refined royal environment who, through some accident of fate, m ended up marrying a very coarse, earthy peasant. So when she comes to live with him in his, in his hut, in his uh, very, very earthy <coughs> hut on the, in the fields, she is very unhappy because she's longing for the refinement of the life of the, the royal life that she experienced beforehand. He perceives that she's unhappy, his, his, new, his new bride. In order to make her happy, he tries to bring her the kind of things that he thinks will appeal to her. So he brings her very greasy and smelly salami, because he thinks that that will make her happy. But she's nauseated by that, because that... And every now and then he finds things that keep her happy for a very brief amount of time, but then she's always looking for that high thing, but he can't relate to that. And that's why whenever you have the sense of whether it's existential tension or the sense of, of a lack, the sense that you're not achieving what you should be or that there's something just out of reach. So then we try to fulfill, we try to fill that need, that lack, by delving into the pleasures of the body and trying to find forms of stimulation that always are short-lived. Because, because what the body's trying to do is feed the unknown dimension with the kind of things that you think in your physical and emotional level will do the job, but they never do do the job. They may have a temporary effect, but then there's always a need for something else. It's only when there's an understanding that what the real longing is, is it's a longing for the depth and the infinite, that kind of dimension that can never be solved or satisfied by physical and finite and temporary pleasures, only then can real, genuine inner pleasure be achieved. That's one 
angle of this. And there are many others. Nebuchadnezzar Chaim talks about the amazing, amazing subject, which we have to re- really discuss separately also, is the question of food. Food is that energy that is created in the world. Why, why, why do we need to eat? Why do we need to eat? Why do we eat? Why does survival depend upon eating? So most of us don't think about it. Most of us think about it. Most of us think, unfortunately, because a few million years ago when you were an amoeba, you know, you had to absorb certain things from the environment, and later when you were a highly developed worm or gorilla, whatever it was, you know, you were eating, and so you're still eating, you know, some of us more than others. But the point is that, um, the point is, of course, that our view of the world is not, not that it's accidental and just happens to be the way it is. Our view of the world is that every element of the world is crea- created specifically because it's a projection of some spiritual reality. And food, the fact that you need to eat in order to survive, needs deep examination. And again, without going into detail, because perhaps we need to discuss this some other time, and it leads to the whole question of vegetarianism, which is a very deep theme within Jewish thinking, and what eating meat really means, and why it's so problematic, and why the Messianic age will be only vegetarian. We have to talk about all this at, at some other stage. But that's one nutshell concept to keep us going, is that food is necessary to sustain life, because it's the energy that connects the opposite poles of body and soul. Since body and soul are opposite polarities and they try to pull away, you need energy to do the work of holding them together. Any work which is done against resistance needs an input of energy to have that work done. Since the neshama is always not, is trying to distract itself out of the body, and the opposite thing to the body, to keep it within the body takes an input of energy. And food, from the perspective of the deeper wisdom, food and eating is that energy which is, it's that substance, that activity, that energy, which is providing the glue that keeps the soul attached to and within the body. If you stop eating, what happens is, the neshama starts to pull itself out, you become faint, and if you stop eating for long enough, it leaves permanently. Right? You need food. In fact, if you look through the, through the statements of creation, you'll find that the tenth or the eleventh of the sayings of creation, after the ten statements <coughs> that create the world, depends on which version of counting you take, but the statement that follows the final creation of man... Is the, is the creation of the concept of food and eating. That means after man is created, there's the need to keep himself or herself in the world by that particular activity, which is the bonding of body and soul, and it takes a specific activity called food. And this is why... This is what it is. I mean, you see it in many ways. One, one area just to... One area you see is that the um, eating is done with the mouth. The mouth is an organ of connections. We know that any part of the body, any of its functions, must always reflect its essence. Since the body is a structure, that's a projection of the spiritual reality. So then, if you look at its function carefully, you will be able to derive what must be the point of origin. The mouth, you see, all the functions of the mouth are functions of connection. What are the functions of the mouth? There are three essential functions of the mouth. You know, spiritually, again, if one organ in the body has more than one function, I think we've discussed this before, then those functions must be intrinsically connected, else they would have been found in different locations. The mouth has three functions. One is speaking, one is eating, and one is kissing. A kiss is a natural, natural human function. They are all three functions of connection. Eating is what we've been discussing. It's the activity of taking in food, which, rema- which, which is a uh, bond uh, between body and soul. Right? Speaking is the connection between people. It's actually on a deeper level, the connection between the spiritual world, that which exists within me in thought, and that which is, I'm able to manifest within the, within the manifest world. But at a, at a simpler level, it's a connection between people. And kiss, a kiss is a natural connection between people. Natural expression of intimate love and connection, whether it's between parents and children, wherever it is, that's a natural expression of, of connection between people. That's a much, much deeper subject, which is, goes into areas that aren't permitted to be discussed in this sort of forum, but, but that's what it is. A kiss is a natural, really doesn't make sense if you think about it. Kissing doesn't make sense at all. If you, had, if you were asked to design an expression of deep connection between people that expresses their intimate connection, you know, you would never have come up with kissing. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, messy, you know, it's uh, decidedly unhealthy, I can assure you. Uh, you know, it's really very, very absurd. The reason you don't think it's absurd is because ever since you can remember, that's what your mother was doing to you. And so, 
you think it's natural, but actually it's not natural at all. It's a very, very absurd activity. It's not something that a logical mind would have, would have come up with. You know, you could have sort of touched eyelashes, you know, you could have, you could have gently rubbed ears, you know. All, there are a lot of, you know, alternative options that would have seemed a lot more aesthetic and, uh, you know, healthy. And yet this is what it is. It's because the mouth is a natural is organ of connection. Again, it needs more discussion. And therefore, eating is one of the functions you see by virtue of the fact that it is, takes place in the same the organ that, that is part of the same... Uh, there's a much deeper part of this discussion as well, and that is that Nebuchadnezzar explains, and again, it's not tonight's subject, I just want to try and share with you a little bit of how far this goes, <coughs> is that one of the most difficult areas in the Torah to understand is the concept of sacrifices. Sacrifices, animal sacrifice, right? To bring sacrifices where they... It's a very, very difficult thing to understand. Extremely difficult thing to understand. Especially in view of the Torah's own sources that say that killing animals is very problematic. It's one of the problems with, with, with eating meat. Extremely problematic. The Torah says quite clearly that someone who kills an animal for no reason, Kidam Shafach, it says it's spilling blood. It's a serious business. So why is the Torah, which is so solicitous of animals' welfare. There's a Torah mitzvah of cruelty to animals, not being cruel to animals. Killing an animal wantonly is a very serious problem. The Kabbalists take it very seriously, even plucking a leaf from a tree unnecessarily. But that's in the world of Kabbalistic sensitivity. But certainly in a much more practical and explicit world, killing an animal is a very serious thing. So why does the Torah have this concept of sacrifice? A very, very difficult concept. And again, without going into detail now, perhaps we'll do that another occasion. Nebuchadnezzar says, again, just a nutshell insight, he says that Just like the human, just like the person, just like, it's an amazing, amazing concept. Yeah. Cannot really be put into a nutshell, but just like a person needs to eat in order to keep the soul within the body, the world needs to eat to keep its soul within it. The soul of the world is Hashem's presence, what we call the Shekhinah. And just like the human being is a microcosm of the whole structure and involves a physical body within which is living a spiritual animating force that we call the Neshama. Similarly, the physical existence of the world is a human body. The Kabbalistic sources describe in detail which parts of the world correspond to which parts of the body. And the whole world, the whole universal structure of the physical universe has within it a soul that keeps it alive and in existence. That is Hashem's presence. And just like the body needs to eat to keep the soul within it, the world needs to eat to keep this, this Hashem's presence within it. And the place of eating of the world is Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, and the base of Mekdash, where the sacrifices are brought. In fact, you'll notice in all the laws of sacrifice, the table, the altar, the Mizbeach, is called Shulchan Gavur. It's called Hashem's table. And all the laws of the sacrifices are the laws of eating. Salt has to be, salt has to be put on every sacrifice. It's expressed as Lechem. It's expressed as Korbani Lachmi, my bread. There are many, many right, correlates between the, the concept of what the offerings are in the base of Mekdash and of course, I'm, I'm sure if you think it through, and I'm sure your minds, as usual, are racing ahead of me, you, all, you already will have realized that the place of eating of the world, which is the temple, Yishlam in the base of Mikdash, is also the place of cosmic speaking and kissing. And it must be so. This Yishlam, where the temple stands, is the place where the world eats. That's where the korbanos are brought, the sacrifices. That is where Hashem's voice is heard. In the very same place, from between the two golden kruvim in the, in the base of Mikdash, is where the voice is heard. Right? Again, because it's the mouth of the world. And thirdly, it is the place of, the, of kissing. It says that uh, that's the place, the nashki shmaya where heaven and earth kiss. It means the point of connection, heaven and earth kissing, is the, is the Talmudic expression denoting the point of supernal contact between the physical world and the spiritual world. That's what takes place in Yerushalayim. That's what Yerushalayim is. And therefore, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim forms that each part of Israel, as I'm sure you're aware, each part of Israel is a corresponding to a part of a body. Just like the whole world has parts that correspond to the body, Israel, which is the microcosm of the whole universe, also has parts of the body, right? The brain, for example. Which town in Israel is the brain? That's a very good guess. It's wrong. It's wrong. Hebron, Hebron. Hebron, where the Abbas are buried, is the Loshon Chibur, right? Hebron means where there's a connection. That's why husband and wife are buried there. Adam and Chava, right? Abram and Sarah, etc. Hebron means Chibur. That's why it's two caves. It's a, a cave within a cave, it says. Two, always the connection of Machpelah. What does the cave of the Machpelah mean? The doubled cave, right? It was, there's a doubling. This world meets the next in terms of the... Where will the Mashiach come from? No? How's your, how's your real Torah geography? Which town in Israel will the Mashiach come from? What does it say? The Mashiach will manifest, the Messianic advent, right? He will manifest from a certain town. Which one? 
Tveria. Tveria, Tiberius, Tveria. What does the word Tveria mean in Hebrew? Tabur, the umbilical connection. Tveria means the umbilicus. Now, a long Kabbalistic description of what that umbilical cord will be and what will manifest. Anyway, this is a... I'm sure you know all this already. Let's go on to the... <laughs> let's go on to the next... Uh, Generous. <laughs> yes, so therefore... Um, let's go... Can we move on to the next? Yes? We are all... We're trying to do in these discussions is... Stimulate a little interest in some areas that people may not have known, right? So that everyone cons- will consider joining Yeshiva for a while, to study the things in depth, come on one of the trips that they offer here to Israel where you can really see things in the, in, with the glow of the environment. Talmud says you can't understand things outside of Israel that you can understand there. The air has a certain emanation that, that, that generates wisdom. Do you imagine what you could understand there? <laughs> Okay, let's go on to the seventh, yes? The seventh answer that he gives, and after that I'd like to try and go into something a little bit beyond. The seventh answer of these seven great principles that the Kliyaka discusses is as follows. The, the Torah is speaking, okay, stay with me carefully. The Torah is speaking to the Jewish people as a whole. The Torah is speaking to the Jewish people as a whole. Not to the individual here. Again, when the Torah says that the reward will be that you will live in the land, notice that this reward here, in its whole description, is a national one. You as a nation will live upon the land of Israel, and you'll be fruitful, and everything will be fine. Not the Jewish people living in their homeland correctly, these are the promises are issued to that national entity. But when speaking to the individual, this is not what's being spoken to over here. And the concept of the next world we have in its deepest essence is a private and personal experience. This again needs a lot of, will need a lot of uh, amplifying and discussing, but essentially we're saying this, that the concept of the next world, not the messianic age, the messianic age is something that will be experience where we'll all have contact with each other, right? Including the resurrection, and so forth. <coughs> but the next world, the final, final, final stage in our mapped out process that we call the world to come, there the, the unique experience of the soul there will be as a private and unique and isolated individual. This is all, it has also other dimensions. There are sources that explain a complicated subject. There are sources that explain that in the final level, we all will be bonded into one soul. Right? The Jewish people will all be bonded into one soul. That's called Knesset Israel. All humanity also at another level. But again, that requires more discussion. But the Jewish people for now is a, is a unique bond called Knesset Israel, which is the feminine word that is used indicating the collective soul of the Jewish people. But in the final, 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 final stage, there will be such an intensely collective experience that there will only be one human being left. Right? That's clearly in the, in the, in the early sources. In the final, final stage, there will only be one person left on earth, and that person will be Adam, right? Adam, the same original cosmic neshama that included all the sparks, which are now our sparks, will be reconstituted, having gone through what he needed to go through, split up into all the sparks that are all of us, right? But again, that's the final, that's the final stage. However, without going into that dimension, the dimension that we're discussing here, I'm not going to try now to resolve them for you, is that the experience that you will have, the way you sit here this evening, conscious of your own existence... Leaving out the, your, 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 your consciousness here, which is a reincarnated consciousness. Leaving out the concept of where you bond with other souls of this generation because we are different sparks of the same... How can we leave it out? Let's speak about it briefly. You know, we have an idea, we have an idea that... We have no agenda here, yeah? A particular agenda to cover a certain amount of material, do we? No, good. As long as we learn, right? Yes. The... Um, you know there are only 600,000 root souls in the Jewish people. There are only 600,000 souls, right? At Sinai there were 600,000 souls, and it says clearly that every generation has only 600,000. And in the final Tchir Samesim, the resurrection, only 600,000 Jewish souls will exist. Non-Jews I'm not going to go into now, that also needs further discussion. That's what, they, what, what will exist there. What accounts for all the Jews who are alive now beyond the number 6,000? What accounts for all the Jews who've lived throughout the generations numbering much more than 600,000 individual <coughs> identities. 
Right? So there are a number of approaches to this, and again, each one needs separate discussion. One obvious solution to the problem, one obvious explanation or, or understanding here, is that many of us here are not in fact new individuals. We are simply inhabiting a new form, right? The concept of Gilgul, which in English is known as reincarnation. Gilgul means that there's been a rolling on of the neshama in more than one, and we have classic Torah sources about it, and it requires its own discussion. But there's, a deeper, there's another concept that, that we, perhaps that's more novel to many people, and that is not only that there's a reincarnated manifestation of an neshama, but also that one root soul, in fact, you can look this up yourself in Derech Hashem, he talks about it quite openly, and it's well and simply translated in English. You can look it up there yourself, Lutzata talks about it, that a, a human soul can split into sparks that are derivatives of the original soul. They really are only parts of that original neshama. So they may look like two or three human beings here, but really in the final reality when things are completely you know, <coughs> clarified and revealed, these three or four or five or many people could reveal themselves as being consolidated into the one source that they all came from, right? Families, in, in a certain sense, families operate like this. I mean, the source for this is that there was only one soul originally, and it's split into all the sparks, which are all of us anyway, right? And we're not re- really saying more than that. All we're saying is that each of those sparks could have split into others. But at the, the correct level to freeze it is 600,000 unique, what he calls, root souls. There he says amazing things in Derech Hashem. He says, he go, goes so fast to say that if a person, there's a problem here of conversion, when a person converts to become Jewish. So what is, what is that person going through? What happened to the root number of souls? What happens to a convert to the Jewish people, right? We discourage converts. We don't want people to convert to They don't have to convert. They can do their own thing fine. But if someone insists on converting, they become Jewish. What is the meaning of that neshama? So the Zohar says that that soul stood at Sinai. That soul, although it was not Jewish, stood at Sinai with the Jewish people. What does that mean? One interpretation is that it was a soul that got lost through history and found its way back. Another deeper interpretation is that is that it really was there in essence, and it's really found its revelation now. There many, this requires, again, a full, a full discussion. But, but there are, however you look at that, there are only 600,000 root souls. There's an amazing place there where the Ramchal says that if a person, a person will manifest as part of the original root that you were, right? If you were part of that root, then you will be, again, that part. But if you, man- if, you, if you live intensely enough, if you build yourself intensely enough, you work on yourself intensely enough, you could achieve the status of becoming a root in your own right. He actually says that explicitly. What will happen to the number of 600,000? I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know. It's beyond my knowledge. I don't know. But uh, a lengthy discussion about it. <coughs> However, there are 600,000 nishams. Now, with all that background in mind, Whatever we call an individual soul, to all intents and purposes, you sitting here, right here and now, what will your experience be in the next world? In what we call Olam Abba that we're discussing here. So the Talmud, the Gemara says quite clearly, you will be there alone. You'll be there alone. You'll see nothing else. You'll see, it says, Each tzaddik, each individual there has a dwelling. Again, we're talking in spiritual terms. But it is according to your honor, according to what you've achieved and what you've built, that is where you will be. Actually, the same sources say that it's not quite true because husband and wife, husband and wife will be there as one entity. It's good news for some of us, it's problematic for others. But the point is that <laughs> that's another subject. Husband and wife, the reason that they will be one entity is because our concept of husband and wife in the first place is that before birth you really were one soul. Right? The Talmud says that 40 days before conception, a voice goes out and says, who is to marry whom? It doesn't mean who's destined or fated to marry whom. That we don't we don't believe that. I'm not talking about that. But there's a voice that goes out and says, who is designated for whom? And if the correct effort is made, right, those two will find each other and there will be nothing other than a getting back together of the original unified soul that there was before. So that's a discussion. Discussion. A person could be married to many more than one people and none of them could be the right one. That's a discussion. But... In a normal case, uh, what's called bashet means the person made a normal effort to get married according to the correct principles, so that person will be, will be... It doesn't mean he'll be happy in marriage, necessarily. It means the ideal person to bring out your greatness, you to bring out hers. That's, that's what it is. And this is not a marriage talk, and therefore I'm not going to go into it in detail. But there is that concept that husband and wife really were one, and all they're achieving in their male and female components is really the oneness that they were. The way this is stated in the original sources, again, although I'm sure you're not interested in these things, is that husband and wife were really joined back to back in the spiritual world. They were really one being back to back. Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, the Gemara says, were one male female being. They were not two people. They were born, they were created as one, 
as one entity. The Gemara says quite clearly there was no back. There was no back. There were only two faces. The back, again, always in the deeper wisdom, the back is always the side of negativity. It's always the side of blindness. It cannot be seen. It's a side of unrecognizability. You can't recognize someone from the back. You cannot recognize someone from the back. You may often think you can, and it may often happen that you walk over and give them a hefty thrashing until they turn around and turn out to be somebody quite different. You can't do that. The back of the head and the back of the neck has certain features of recognizability, but it's unreliable. Only the hands and the face. The face and, to some extent, the hands are valid tools of recognition. That's another discussion. Again, we have to make a list of these sometimes. The point is that... um, the point is that the front is the side of Kedusha and relationship. The back is the side of excretion and negativity. Why that is, is again another, another discussion. So there was really no side of negativity. There was a complete safe situation, completely safe situation. Of course, you realize that the danger, the downside of that safe situation is there was no relationship possible. Although there's no negativity exposed, but there's no relationship possible. In order for a relationship to take place where two people must bond into each other, you need to tear them apart and make that tremendous vulnerability of an unguarded back that cannot be protected, so that the, the, that's the risk of... Maybe we'll talk about marriage at, on some occasion and we'll be able to go into these things in more detail. So, granted now that husband and wife will be one unit, nevertheless, that one unit will express itself and experience itself alone. Right? What does this mean? <coughs> in its simplest level, it means that what you've done as an individual here is what you will experience there. Now, you cannot blame anyone else. It does not matter what your raw material was, how you were brought up, what your intellect and intelligence and personality and financial state. All that's irrelevant. All that will matter in the next world is what did you do with the raw material that you were given? What percentage increase, as it were, did you make in what you were given? Now, that is your credit. That is who you are. Or, again, it makes no difference. Some, person, some, some individual might have been born and given tremendously low potential, almost nothing, tremendously handicapped. And somebody might have been given cosmic potential, Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. But the question is, what did you achieve of your raw material? Did you maximize, did you get to 99% of your raw material? If you did, you stand next to him in the next world, absolutely next to him. Because he achieved 99% of his. The scale of judgment, are you with me? The scale of judgment is not what did you achieve in an absolute sense. That's not your problem. You were put in a certain place to achieve a certain thing. If you were put as the toe of the cosmic structure, your, your perfection is being a toe correctly. You won't feel bad that you're a toe and not a finger or a nose or an ear or cells in the brain. Your pride and, and pleasure and, and essence will be that you did that properly. The question is, did you do that properly? That's the question. Most of us are so busy trying to be somebody else that we don't do either of them properly. But that's the question. And therefore, the scale of judgment, in the, there is an absolute scale as well, but that's not our concern, not our consideration, and again, it's another subject. Our concern is, how much did you achieve of what your raw material was? That's your essence of existence in the next world. Incidentally, this is why we don't compare people against each other. In Jewish education, for example, in Torah education, we never compare children to each other. In a Torah school, children are not given marks that any other child sees. It's completely irrelevant when a child gets a mark on a test. The whole concept of that is how much did the child bring out of their potential? That's what the teacher should be relating to. Whether the child did better or worse than some other child, completely different package of abilities and disadvantages, completely irrelevant. The child comes home and the parents say, what did you get on the test? And the child says what they got. Then the next question the parents ask is, what did everybody else get? That's not education, that is destruction of a child. I'm just bringing this in because it's so important. If you, if you ever want to have a... If you feel like being depressed, <laughs> then guaranteed heartbreak, right? You go to a junior school prize giving. A little five and six and seven-year-olds are being given certificates and prizes for their achievements. What always happens at those prize givings is in the class that you're looking at, there's one obnoxious type who gets all the prizes. It's always like that. And... Uh, that's the character that's guaranteed will turn out a criminal in the future. But that individual, <laughs> that, that, child, that child gets all the prizes. And next to him is sitting a little seven-year-old whose heart is breaking. Because that child would give anything to come home for a, with a certificate or a prize, but they didn't get any. That's not education. That's, that is destruction of character. That, that's not Jewish education. They must all get prizes, or none must get prizes. Each child must be stressed maximally against his or her own potential. That is no holds barred. The teacher has to make sure that each child, and parents have to bring out the greatness of each child relative to what he or she could have done. But what's it relevant to this child, what that child's? 
Our sources say that when children are 15 and 16 and 17, there's no problem being unfair. In a school of that age, when children are, yes, already 14, 15, 16, and then you compare them to each other in a seemingly unfair fashion, that's fine. The reason is because life is unfair. And at some point or other, they need to learn it. There's no problem. But not when they're six years old and their characters are being formed, they don't have the maturity to understand that they have their own self-worth. They define themselves only in terms of the comparison that is made between them and others. That's not education. Are we together? I presume, I, I presume there's some teachers here. And, and parents or potential parents. That's not Jewish education. We don't compare people to each other, right? We don't, we don't do that. How a person does must be made clear. I'll never forget once I had an opportunity to discuss a rare opportunity where my Rosh Hashiva, Rosh Kolal, in fact, at the time, a couple of words he indicated to me one or two of his own personal experiences. It was a rare, a rare treat. And I remember, a thing I'll never forget is, he described this experience that he'd been through on this level. It's a remarkable thing, tremendous education. He told, he told me that when he first went to Mary Yeshiva, he was 17 years old. <coughs> what happened was he was a young bocha in Lakewood, studying in Lakewood in America, he was just 17. And Rav Nochem Perkovitz, Rav Nochem, the great Rav Nochem of Mir, came to America and he gave a shear in, in Lakewood. He said he heard that shear and he said, that's my Rebbe. He left America, he went back with him to Israel and learned with him for the next 17 years. Right? Until Rav Nochem couldn't teach anymore. And that's how he became one of the great men of this generation. But the point is that when he arrived in Mir, he was 17 years old. And one, one of the experiences he had in the first few weeks was he had to say a chaburah. He had to say his own composition in terms of the learning that he had done. He had to put something together of his own origination, creativity, and he had to say it over to a group of more senior bachri, more senior boys. So they went into a room. They did it. That, that's a common experience in Yeshiva. They went into a room, and it was his turn to present. So he presented his ideas about how he had learned up the Gemara. He said it was so bad, it was so, it was so immature that they actually laughed. I can't imagine him saying anything immature, but he said it was not good, and they actually laughed at him. It was so, it was so inadequate and so immature, so he never did that again. But that was the level of his preparation, his understanding. They actually laughed at him in the group. But listen to what happened after that. As they left the room, the door opened, and he was, he was lagging behind in the room, and one of the senior boys was leaving, right? And as he walked out into the passage, another boy in the yeshiva who had not been present during the Chaburah walked past. And seeing the new boy inside, he said to the senior fellow, he said to him, how did he do? And he said he was amazed to hear this, say, the, 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 this older boy said to him, very good, very good. And he walked out. Amazing. Amazing. What's it your business? Huh? He, that means we were in intense Chaburah together. Our job was to give each other the criticism that's needed. That's what we did. But that relevant to you? It's got nothing to do with you. Compare that to a secular society where, to a person's face, you say very pleasant things, and behind their face is where you level the criticism. Anyway, that's Torah education. And therefore, the concept is that our concept of the next world is tremendous loneliness. Aloneness. The aloneness means that all there is there is you, because that's what you've generated. We have a concept that there's a reflection that you see. What you see in that world what you experience intrinsically in the, most, in the most vibrant terms is who you are, and what you see in equally intense terms is what you could have and should have been. If you had spent all of your life working and building yourself as you should have, you would have been what you could, what you, you know, this cosmic development that you should have been. What you've shown is who you are and what you could have been. But that's, all, that, that's the entirety of the experience. The intense pleasure is feeling how much of yourself you have actualized and built. And the intense pain is seeing, yes, what you could have and should have and did not do. Of course, ultimately, that pain is its own resensitization. There's not a vindictive situation or, 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 or punishment. It is a, is a painful regrowing of all that that you should have grown yourself through your own hard work. That is our concept of the, the soul's experience in the next world in very, very simplistic terms. And therefore, you can readily see that it must be a private experience. Is this clear? Not clear, huh? I've done my best to explain. This must be a private experience. Why should I suffer? Because you didn't do your work properly. In an absolute terms, of course I suffer. And there's another judgment on an absolute level. And that's the Jewish people. I'm not going into that yet. But my personal reward, right, to use that term, will be what I did. The fact that you brought me down is not my fault. That's your fault. You're going to have to pay for that. Not only will you have to pay for it, you'll have to pay for my damage too. That's absolutely clear. When you get judged in the next world, whatever, without 
using the Jewish sense of judgment, right, which is this experience that we're describing. You have to answer for everything that you do, and all the consequences too. The fact that you lowered the level of the Jewish people because you did not live up to your, obliga- to your obligations, even in private, the rest of the Jewish people have a claim on you. Even in the most private moments where no one sees. But you put out an energy into the world that brings it all down. And you say, I suffer. I cannot achieve what I could have achieved otherwise because you brought me down. You didn't think you were doing it. You did it in private, but you brought us all down. When the Jewish people sinned and Moshe Rabbeinu was standing at the top of the mountain, Hashem said to him, You go down because your people have sinned. You go down because they sinned? Absolutely. If you're the head of a body and the body goes down, the head goes down. I wasn't responsible. You had nothing to do with it. Nothing doing. The Jewish people are one organic entity and you go down. In that sense, you're accountable and I'm accountable. But there's another level of judgment on which I am looked at as an individual. What did I do? And it's a remarkable and tremendously elevating and and inspiring thing because even if the whole situation is a disaster, I'm going to get looked at for how did I cope and what did I do. It's a remarkable thing. Are we together? That means even you live in a generation as lowly as this, this is the lowest generation that's ever been in the history of the world. We're very, very close to the messianic not dead skin on the bottom of the feet, as it's put in the, in the sources. Right? So you might feel complete despair. But the resolution of that despair is it makes no difference. You're going to be judged for how did you handle your situation. Are you with me? The fact that the overall situation was low has got nothing to do. What, did you, what, what percentage increase did you make on what you were given? That's all. Incidentally, as a complete aside... As a complete aside, it's worth, if you've ever taken the time to study the faces, did we ever talk about this before? The photographs, the faces of the Gedolim. No, we never talked about this. If you study the photographs that we have over the last hundred years or so, and you look at the faces, if you've ever been privileged to see people of Torah greatness, almost none left, unfortunately, almost none this generation. But if you ever were privileged to see those who remained from the previous generation, you look at the faces, they are the most amazing experience to look at those faces. You see faces lined with the responsibility and the depth, the depth of responsibility, and you see faces that are totally serene. It's a remarkable thing. That means people living in the Holocaust, literally, the Holocaust that we went through and the Holocaust afterwards, which has been worse spiritually, in a disastrous situation where all the forces on earth virtually are ranged against us and against spirituality, and yet you see faces totally serene. Amazing thing. How do they generate that? What is the serenity there? I mean, how, how is it that they manage the serenity and even the simcha, the simcha, the happiness, while living in a world as painful as it is. It needs thought. But one important insight here is that people of spiritual greatness, the reason they have a serenity is because they know that there are two levels. One level is the overall situation. That's a disaster. But the second situation is, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing maximally what I have to be doing in this situation? If you can answer yes to that, you can have serenity on your face. Ah, the overall situation is collapsing around you. It's total shambles, disaster, chaos, destruction, horrendous holocaust. That's not my problem. That's his problem. It's not my problem. He didn't put me here to solve the situation. He put me here to do what he told me to do. That's all you have to worry about. He's running the show. He knows what he's doing. If the whole thing's going to end this way or that way, it's his problem. You can have faith on him. Faith in him. He knows what he's doing. The question is, do you know what you're doing? That's a problem. You can rely on him to handle his end of the deal. He said it will go to a certain place, it's going to go to that place. The question is, are you doing what you have to be doing? So if you can stand in the midst of all this burning going on around you, and you can absolutely clearly say that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, so you can have serenity on your face, while yet showing the lines of the, of the pain of the situation. It's a remarkable thing. But you see it clearly in the faces. You don't need me to explain it to you. Even in those photographs, you can see it. Let me move on and just mention briefly... Yes, do you have energy for a few more minutes? Now that we've finished these seven answers, and there are others as well, I'd like to share with you just one insight from another dimension, and then we can perhaps move on to other subjects in the future. And that is this. Again, this is not simple at all. And it's not listed here for for obvious reasons. But let's do our best to try and understand it together. Our problem is, again, please stay with me carefully. Our problem is, why does the Torah not mention the world to come? That's our problem, right? Why does it not talk about the world to come? This answer, which comes from very, very deep sources, says as follows. The Torah does talk about the world to come. It absolutely does, quite explicitly. In this description, 
When the Torah talks here about the rain falling and the crops growing and so forth, what do you think it's really talking about? You think it's talking about rain, that rain out there, and the crops out there in the fields? What the Torah is talking about here is nothing other than the world to come itself. It uses metaphorically borrowed language of things that appear physical. What the Torah talks about in essence is always the spiritual reality. It never talks about the practicality. The practical thing is only the hints in the words. The way it's put in the sources in the Rishonim is It speaks about the higher world and hints at the lower world. What it's really speaking about is the higher world. What it's hinting at in the words is the lower world. Let's try to understand. Again, again, again. Before we understand it, what are we saying? We're saying that in this description, the Torah says, if you serve as you should serve and live as you should live, the consequences will be, and it starts listing all these things, it is here talking about nothing other than the next world. How can it talk about the next world in words other than words that you understand? So it uses words you understand. But it's talking about that reality. It's not talking about this. It's also talking about this. It also means that if you live correctly, you will live in Israel with the land fertile and the rains fall. Of course it means that, but that's a completely secondary meaning. The primary meaning is what it's talking about in essence, because the Torah is essence. Being that I see very few enlightened faces, oh, heartbreakingly few, let's, let me try and illustrate this just a drop more clearly and we'll, we'll close with this idea. We have actually spoken about this in more detail from another perspective. But I'd like to just recall one or two angles of that discussion as we need it here. But it's, it's going to take effort, this idea. It's not simple, but it's worth reaching for, I can assure you. In fact, if you reach for this and grasp it, you'll never be the same again. That's for sure. Certainly never relate to Torah again the same. Again, please, hold with me. You know, the Rambam says, and he brings it down halachically, that it's forbidden to conceive of Hashem, of God, as having any corporeal or physical element. Right? You may not conceive of Him, or think of Him in any way as having anything tangible or corporeal. Right? A hand, or an eye, or a foot, or... Clear? On the contrary, the Rambam listed as one of the 13 principles, 13 articles of faith, that Hashem is totally incorporeal. Right? Anyone ever see it here? It says, He is not a body... Or any image, not only not a body, but even any refined abstract diagram is completely forbidden. When you say Hashem's name, you say Baruch Atah, and you say Hashem's name, when you're saying that name, if you picture anything, anything, let alone a body, a hand, an eye, a foot, a man in the sky with a white beard. But even a refined and abstract diagram of any sort, you're transgressing one of the 13 principles and it's, you're transforming the mitzvah of prayer into something very close to idolatry. That's called hakshamah, giving a tangible or physical reality to Hashem. In fact, it's well known that the 13 articles of faith are really nothing other than the converse of the 13 things that you lose a share in the world to come if you transgress. Right? Because if you see Hashem as not being infinite and totally transcendent, you see Him as being something that has a physical component, so you've, you've completely shattered the, the infinite absoluteness of what He is. And therefore, of course, you cannot relate to that. that. That's the concept of losing a share in the world to come. So in summary, Hashem, God, has no physical, corporeal, finite component at all, and you may not think of Him as having any such thing. So far, so good? Okay. The obvious problem is, please, stay with me carefully. The obvious problem is, how come the Torah talks as if He does? How come the Torah talks as if He does? When you read Torah, from beginning to end, it talks about a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and it talks about His eyes and His beard, it talks about Hashem's pears, it talks about His hair, His feet, you name it. Every part of the body, the Torah talks about explicitly. Now the problem is, if it's forbidden to conceive of Hashem, please, think with me deeply, it's a deep, deep issue, deep question. If it's forbidden to think about God, about Hashem, as having any physical component, like a hand or an eye, then how come the Torah says He does? So the Rambam who says this, asks this question and answers as follows. Stay with me every step of the way. Rambam says, if it's forbidden to think of Hashem as having any finite corporeal physical element, how come the Torah talks of Him as if He does? Says the Rambam, Dibra Torah Colossian B'nai Adam. The Torah speaks in human terms. The Torah speaks in human language. Now the wrong understanding of that, that people think, oh, that's the answer. It means it's borrowed language. It means He doesn't really have a hand. He doesn't really have a hand. He doesn't really have an eye. It's just human language. After all, we can't understand what he really is. So the Torah uses language that is borrowed. 
Human language, after all, you can't understand what it really is. There are no words for that since it's all infinite. The Torah uses things that you're familiar with. So it doesn't mean he has a hand. This is a hand. Whatever he has, I don't know, but it's using this. It's borrowed language. It's an analogy. The Torah is an analogy. It's a marshal. It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. Two minutes thought will show you that that's completely inadequate. There's no answer at all. Why? First of all, it's wrong. And secondly, it's forbidden. Let's start with the second. The Torah obeys its own rules. You know that? Hashem obeys His own mitzvahs. You know that? The Gemara says that God fulfills all the commandments. He fulfills all the commandments. He wears tefillin. You know that? The Gemara says He wears tefillin. He puts on tefillin. What does it say? In His tefillin, praises of us. Just like our tefillin, praise Him. The Gemara says, believe, believe it or not, the Gemara says that He davens. He prays. God prays? The Gemara says, look it up in Brachas. Davav, Davzayin. To whom? <laughs> and what does he ask for? <laughs> Look it up. Look it up. It's not the subject for now. But he does. He fulfills all his commandments. Right? He fulfills his commandments. So if he fulfills his own commandments and he holds himself bound by his own laws, how can he express his own essence as having a hand and an eye? Is this clear? If I'm not allowed to do it, then how come he... What's going on? And furthermore, it's wrong. It's wrong. If it's false and wrong, then what do you mean it's an analogy? But it's wrong. Apart from the fact that it's not allowed. It's wrong. If I wish to think of God as having a hand, because I... But it's wrong. So the Torah... You mean, you mean to say that the Torah does, since I cannot understand what it really is, so it says what it's not. After all, you can't understand the truth, so I'm going to tell you a lie. That doesn't make any sense. Again, you have to understand that an analogy is never true. A marshal, an analogy is never true. What is an analogy? Let's say there's something on the other side of that wall. And I wish very, very, very deeply for you to understand what it is. But you cannot see through the wall. So I build you a model, an analogy here. That's what an analogy is, right? I build you something that's exactly parallel. And from carefully going through this parallel and you're studying this parallel, you come to understand perfectly on what's on the other side of the wall. That's a very successful marshal analogy. But it's not the thing itself. It's not the thing itself. It may be beautiful, it may be relevant, it may be wonderful, it may do the job, but no one's complaining. But it's not the thing itself. It's an analogy. The thing itself is something else. If the Torah speaks about a hand and an eye, and you mean it's only an analogy, then it's not the thing itself. And the Torah must be the thing itself. The Torah is Hashem speaking. The Torah is truth. The Torah is the definition of truth. Whatever the Torah says must literally be exactly what it says. The Torah cannot be an analogy. Can you see this? An analogy is not the truth. An analogy may be very useful, it may be wonderful, it may do the job, and again, no one's complaining, but it's not the thing itself. The Torah is not a borrowed analogy. The Torah must be the thing itself. You feel this? Which means you're forced to say, incredibly, that if the Torah says Hashem has a hand, He has a hand. And if He has an eye, it says He has an eye, He has an eye. It must mean that. What does that mean? But the answer is, you think that this is a hand and his is an analogy. His hand is a real hand and this is the analogy. That's all it is. When the Torah talks about Hashem's hand, it's talking about the real thing. But it's using words that you understand in your world of analogy. That's what it is. This is, not, this, this, this is a marshal for a real hand. What's a real head? What's a real eye? You have no idea. You could not... There's no way that you could begin to relate to that. After all, right, in our, in our deep sources it says that his hand and his eye and his beard and his face are all the same thing. Since Hashem Hashem Echad, since he's one, so all that he is, is one. How can there be a hand and an eye and all different things that are all one? You cannot understand. The Kabbalistic sources discuss it. But since he wants you to understand what his hand is, and there's no way you can understand what he's saying. He gives you this. That's what he does. He says, study this thing carefully. When you study this thing on this side of the wall, you'll know what the real thing is there. This is the analogy, not him. The Torah says what it is. No analogies. But it uses words when it talks about what it is that also apply to you in your world of, of Marshall. 
And therefore, when you read what it says here, whatever it says in Torah, if it says he has a hand, he has a hand. What is his hand? Study this for a lifetime. All its incredible details. Everything in that hand is it has 14 bones. It has the 14 bones. The hand is from here down, right? This is called Kafayat. This is called Yad. 14 in Hebrew is Yad. Yudal in Hebrew is 14. That's exactly what it means. 28, all bones together of the hands, is called Koyach. That's your, your power. That's what Koyach means. What is a Yad? Why are there five fingers? Why are there five and ten and left and right? All needs to be discussed. But from studying it carefully in what it is, why do you have nails? Why do you have nails? Do you know what these teach you? Do you know what it says in our writings about these things? Remind me sometime, we'll talk about it. <laughs> However, the concept is, the concept is that everything that it talks about in Torah is the way it is. But we live in an analogy. Why? Because in this finite world, we live experiences from which you can project through a, a training, through a process of elevation and, and sensitization, you can project them into what they really are. In fact, the principle is that every single experience that you have in this world is nothing other than a projection or an analogy inside a world of illusion of what a thing is in reality. You hear that? Everything that you experience here, every part of your body, every emotion, every human experience, every phenomenon, every object in the world is nothing other than a marshal, an analogy, for something that's real. And the reason it's given to you is so you can begin to understand reality. You know what you should see in a tree? Do you know what you should begin to see in a tree when you see what a tree is? you know what you can do with a tree? Do you know what it is? Do you know what is a hard, woody substance that brings out fruit, that is sweet and edible and succulent and has seeds that enable you? Why are the seeds in the sweet part? Why? Why are the seeds, which are eternity, located in the part that's also sweet and why? Um, I'm not going to tell you why now. But it also relates to marriage. It's not the time to discuss. But the word tree, the word, the word eights in Hebrew, the word eights, the word eights meaning a tree. What is the Garden of Eden? You know what it was? Trees. That's in the analogy. The word eights in Hebrew, which means tree. The word etz in Hebrew means actuality or essence, like etzem, the real thing. Right? In the world of analogy, it's trees, because studying them can tell you what actuality is. Every phenomenon, every experience in the world is nothing other. Everything that he wishes to know, he gives you an experience of here. Everything that you experience here can teach you about reality. Everything you have here is an experience within the illusion, within the projection, that just like the film that projects itself onto the screen, from looking at the screen, which is a complete illusion... You can project back what the reality must have been. Are you looking at the reality? Nothing doing. Can you tell what it must have been? Yes. You're only looking at a complete flimsy two-dimensional illusion. But it's enough. Study it well, and when you meet those people and see those places, you will recognize them. You don't need more than that. You don't need more than this thing here. You don't need more than this. I study this completely and thoroughly the way you should. Not like an accident, but like you should. And this thing the way you should, you'll know what it is. And therefore, every experience that we have within the world of illusion, relatively, within the world of illusion, teaches you about reality. Let's finish with one idea that applies this. I think I mentioned it once some months ago, but let's finish with this. It's a wonderful and beautiful idea. And that is, if this world is a dream world, if this is a world of illusion that is only mashalim, only analogies for reality, then what's a dream? What's a dream? Isn't that a beautiful question? No? <laughs> what's a dream? If every experience in this world is an experience within the illusion, then what's a dream? A dream is an illusion in the illusion. Why would he do that? Again, if we have an axiom, yes, that everything you live through here is illusory compared to reality. You know what a dream is? In a dream, you're going through some experience where you're in absolute ecstatic pleasure or abject terror. Right? And you, it's very, very real. Right? The reason it's so terrifying is because you think it's... If you knew you were sleeping and dreaming, it wouldn't be terrifying. The whole reason that it's terrifying is because you think you're awake. What happens? Suddenly you wake up and you sit up in bed shaking and sweating. And you feel, oh, Hashem, that was only a dream. What, 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 what's going on? Why would he... Yeah? While you were going through it, you thought it was real. Then you wake up and you realize that it was nothing, illusion, a flimsy nothing, imagination. And now... What you're going through sitting up in bed, shaking it, that's real. 
Why would he do that to you? Why would he put you in a world of illusion? And while you're going through the illusion, makes you live through an illusion inside it. Why would he do that? And confusing? But in the spiritual world, there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. If the rule is that every human experience is an illusion to teach you about reality, then that's what a dream is. You know what a dream teaches you? The most important message of all. You know what a dream teaches you? Imagine you come up to a friend of yours and you say, you know, this whole world around you is just an illusion. <laughs> this whole world is an illusion. It seems real, but it's not. You know, one day, one day, one day unexpectedly and rapidly, you're going to transition from this world to something else. It happens, you never know when it's going to happen. It happens suddenly and unexpectedly. You're going to transition from this world into another one and then you'll know what reality is. Then you'll realize this was a flimsy nothing, a wisp of memory, nothing. And then you'll know what reality is. You know what your friend would say to you? Do me a favor. I deal with what I can experience. You're giving me some theory that this is not real, it's relative, another thing. I have what's tangibly proved to me that this is real. I stick with what I can experience. How could you blame such a person? How could you blame such a person? Completely justified. Unless he's ever had a dream. You know what a dream teaches you? A dream teaches you that that which you think is real now... He puts you through an experience where in your flesh you go through the transition of thinking something's real and then discover that it's not. How could you ever deny? Yes? You deny that this world is an illusion? To you it doesn't seem logical, doesn't seem possible? Go to sleep. So, one dream, that's all you need. If you have any sensitivity at all, any se- all you have to do is dream once. What happens in your dream? You're going through absolute abject terror. You're about to be crushed and dismembered and who knows what. And suddenly at the most critical moment you sit up in bed shaking and sweating and you say, Baruch Hashem, that was only a dream. And now I'm awake. Are you sure? In other words, after you've been through that experience, right, where you absolutely tangibly convinced, you feel it, you experience reality, and then you wake and you realize now, how do you know you're awake, by the way? I mean, those of you who are. <laughs> how do you know? Huh? How do you know you're awake? How do you know you're awake? Don't tell me because you know. When you were dreaming, you also knew you were awake, didn't you? There's no way out of that. There's no way out of that. Anybody wants any evidence that this whole thing is a flimsy illusion that will one day snap into something else? All you need is one dream. He doesn't play unfair. He plays fair. He wants you to know that this thing is subject to being rapidly changed. How could you possibly be expected to understand that? gives you a tangible experience. After that, there's no, there's no denying after that. Denying that it's impossible, that it could never be. After you've been through it yourself, you have to be such a hardened disbeliever that there's no hope for you. Incidentally, you know that Hashem's analogies are always exact. You know, when He gives you analogies, they're not rough and approximate. I don't know if you're aware of that. You know that a dream always has some nonsense within it. You know, the Talmud says even prophetic dreams always have something wrong. Because a dream is always from the world of illusion. It always has to have a mistake. Or you know that uh, in sleep research, you know in in modern physiological sleep research, they've shown very beautifully, it's very well known, that dreams that take long periods of time to occur actually happen in milliseconds. Do you know that? Do you know that it's possible to demonstrate very elegantly in the sleep laboratory that 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 a person can dream events that take many, many weeks and months, long, long periods of time. And in fact, you can demonstrate that they dreamed all of that within a microsecond. Isn't that what life is? Isn't that what life is? Where's all your past now? Where's all the years of your past now? Just a wisp of memory. It's nothing. And the older you get, the faster it goes. A dream teaches you even that. And therefore, in summary, the principle is, the principle is that the Torah speaks about reality in undiluted terms, speaks exactly the way things are, no analogies or borrowed terms, that's exactly what it is, but it uses the language that we use within our world of illusion so that, so that we can become familiar with those things that transcend our understanding from within the system itself. Okay, we'll stop.